We are back. Look at us. Not in person anymore, sadly. No, no. Back to the remote studios. It was good. It was good, though. Now we'll be in focus. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, but how am I going to be able to see the Infinity Gauntlet? It's still there. there but the there's nothing there. like when it's actually on your hand and distracting my train of thought. It's very true. I think we came out of that episode with some really good social content for the pod, which is really all that matters. That, that is all that matters. When Index Ventures raises $3 billion and has 28,000 TikTok followers, they got some great TikTok content. But do they created that TikTok account to announce it? Or have no, they had I it think the whole they time? had it before. They have some very creator-focused investors, so I think they're eating their own cooking. Mm. All right. I like it. It's making me wonder whether or not I should get a TikTok. You should do it. But I'm more interested in what's going on in the intersection of community and capital. And there's none of that on, well, there's a little bit of that on TikTok for well, sure, right? Well, there is. It's with all the influencers. So Trust Fund Terry, Liquidity. You know, he's a real person. All of he these. DM'd me a pitch. <laughs> do you know him? I do not know Terry. He Terry. pitched me a DM. I was floored. I was like, you're a real person. Who knows? I figured it was just a meme account and like some big, I don't know, some big media empires behind a hundred of them. And they're just farming it out under different brands. But no, he's a real person dedicated to his craft. Terry, whoever you are, your memes are very good. I follow you on Instagram. I enjoy them. You probably get all the jokes. I only get like two thirds of them. There's some finance <laughs> yeah, jokes that I just true. don't get. That's the benefit of having worked on Wall Street is I get some of their jokes. <laughs> you get all the trust fund Terry memes. That's a, that's a perk. <laughs> we can joke about this all we want, but theme of memification of financial services is real. And it is something that people in traditional financial services, I think, need to take notice of because it's changed the way that people invest, particularly the retail investor. You can go back to the Robinhood S1 as an example. Doge, which is a meme coin, <clears throat> represented a meaningful portion of Robinhood's Q1 revenues. And that's just a meme, effectively. There's meme stocks. I think it's, it's actually a really interesting theme to unpack when we think about what memes, consumer social, mean for the future of financial services, because this really gets to the underpinnings of consumer social and the power of consumer social apps. FinTech world would do really well to learn from that. Yeah, yeah, they would. And it seems like there's enough new folks entering now who are building platforms with that in their core. The core DNA is about sharing deals and following great investors, even if they're total strangers. It's wild, though. I, I feel more compelled by following the stock advice of roaring kitty <laughs> someone who i don't know in real life and i just know from reddit then i do my i don't know sit, who can i pick on my sister i don't know or some of my childhood friends and that's not it's nothing personal it's just that within an average person's friend group there's only a few people really with the passion and the time and the the bandwidth to care about this and invest in this and do it well 
you just have a small sample. Whereas if you have a larger sample, that is the entire internet, you're going to find people, even though they're total strangers, you're going to find people who you believe in. And it's not that weird because 50 years ago, when you gave your money to a bank, you were trusting a bunch of strangers to do well with it. And sure, it was FDIC insured. But at the end of the day, like they're handling your money and God knows what they're trading or doing with it and, and where they're investing it. So why do you think that is? Why are you more comfortable trusting a stranger on the internet and the way that they would think about managing money and then believing that money comes down to trust at the end of the day? So what about the internet, online communities and consumer social makes you comfortable thinking about that? Well, okay. So specifically for stock picking, I got life-changing money when I sold Reddit. That's the 22. And I couldn't go to my parents for advice because this was more money than they had made their entire working lives. And I got a financial advisor and nice guy who was recommended to be my accountant. I didn't do any interview. I was stupid. He was the first guy and he was nice. And what I came to realize after a few years was <laughs> he was not like 10x smarter than me. And what I mean by that is he was a perfectly fine guy. But if I look across any industry, you're going to have a normal distribution. You're going to have lots of people in the middle who are average doing this service. And then uh, a small group of people, a couple standard deviations from the mean, who you really want to actually be doing it. Otherwise, I should just be putting all that money in index funds and not even trying to pick, not even try to beat the market. Because unless I'm sitting over here with someone who's just smarter, savvier, more sophisticated, better insider, whatever you want to call it, like able to outperform, why am I bothering? Why am I paying? Why am I dealing with all that? And I realized, and again, no disrespect to him, it's just if I'm going to rely on another person's advice to pick individual stocks, why would I just limit myself to all the people at Merrill Lynch. You know, there's, I don't have enough time to evaluate a thousand people and then try to figure out who's really the best person to advise me. And, and there are things that just don't scale. And then yet, thanks to software, thanks to the transparency of an investment track record that you can publish online, all these places. And, and certainly building Reddit has informed me that any room, no matter how well-funded, no matter how well compensated everyone is in there, no one room or no one building can outperform the very best people in the world. The, the reason, at the end of the day, the New York Times cannot be a front page for the internet is that no matter how well-funded they all are, no matter how much resources you give them, they're still 24 hours in a day. And the creativity of hundreds of millions of people all over the internet, upvoting and downvoting and submitting, is going to win. And I can't but feel the same way that there's no reason why Genius can't be trading stocks in Poughkeepsie in their parents' basement and, and doing a better job of it than my guy at Merrill Lynch. I don't see any reason why that couldn't be the case, just like for so many other things we're finding talent in, in so many other unexpected places. If I'm looking for the, the performers who are a couple standard deviations from the mean, why would I limit myself to a sample of people who just got a job at Merrill Lynch? Because as great as they are, it's still a very, very limited sample of people. And that distribution of whatever, 5,000 investment analysts, whatever they're called, advisor, what, yeah. the people who work there <laughs> who are going to send hate mail now, there's 5,000 of them. There's a normal distribution of that 5,000 at every company. There's a bunch of people who are just average. And the people you really want getting advice or giving you the advice are the ones who are the exceptional few. 
And, and otherwise, just doing the next one. That's how I feel about it. And so, I think the general consensus generationally for, for digital natives is forget the authority, forget the institution, be pragmatic. Where are the best people doing the best job? Here's my money. Or here, let me take your advice. Well, so there's two things here, both of which I think are actually happening in fintech. So one is within the financial advisor community, there needs to be a better platform for discovery to find the best financial advisors. There are companies who are actually doing that. There's a company called Zoe Financial that's actually backed by SoftBank uh, that is doing that or trying to do it. I think in the financial advisor community, it's actually hard for two reasons. One is I think that most wealth managers think of preserving wealth rather than growing wealth. So once you have wealth, the goal is to preserve rather than grow. Now, I think there are still ways to grow, but I think that the incentive for a wealth manager is they're in an annuity business. They make 60 basis points or 0.6% to 1% or 100 basis points a year on a client's assets. So they're incentivized to just continue managing those client assets. If they do a poor job, then they lose those client assets, but it's the type of business where you want to keep that client and then you just continually take fees every year. So the goal is to not screw up and make sure you're preserving wealth rather than growing wealth to some extent. Now, I think that's a distinction from the younger generation who wants to A, invest in different things, B, search for yield, and C, they might want to actually grow what they have and do it in more non-traditional ways, i.e. with a financial advisor, because many of these financial advisors tend to be older and can't necessarily meet the Gen Z or millennial investor or wealth creator at the same place. And they wouldn't know how to talk about an asset on Rally Road or a sports card and say, oh, well, this is actually a financial asset, which is hopefully what all the things that we're both doing change that and help educate both communities about that. It's an interesting point you make about the wealth management industry. And I think there actually is the need for a one platform for discovery to trust-based system. But that also gets to the other side of this, which is in general for the consumer who wants to invest. Where is that platform for discovery? Number one, in consumer social, you have platforms for discovery to find people who you then want to follow. And then you consume their content. You get to know them online. You understand their online identity, and then you trust them. So the other piece of this is where's that platform for discovery and then trust, which is, I think, what most financial services comes down to is trust, where people can actually find, trust, and learn from others on the internet, and then follow what they invest in, invest in the same things they invest in, and start to participate in the financial services ecosystem as a result of that. Look, if you crack that, you're going to be a big winner. Now, you don't just have traditional competition now, you have a DeFi or decentralized finance giving everyone a chance to do really remarkable things where there is a sort of structural trust, contractual, programmatic trust, but that's about it. And even that is uh, gameable. Do you think that the younger generation, because they've grown up online, is more likely to trust a trustless or decentralized system? Yes, for sure. I wholeheartedly believe that we're seeing a very... It feels dangerous to be determined if it is dangerous. Erosion of institutions and institutional authority all across the board. And yes, the internet 
is the accelerant of that because it enables alternatives that are better, cheaper, faster and drives down prices, just does all that great stuff the internet technology does. But it's also being wielded by a generation that has had its world shifted time and time again and been let down in a lot of cases time and time again by institutions. And I go back to, you're not old enough. How old were you when 9-11 happened? You were a little kid. I was 13. It's 13. <laughs> three, three plus 10. <laughs> so I was a freshman in college. I was a first year at college. And I think that was the start of a moment for, because I am a geriatric millennial, of course. I can tell. And you can see the grays. It's real. What, what followed that and the wars that followed, and then you get the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. There's a lot of cynicism. You have government, you have institutional finance. Next, you have higher education. The whole generation gets told, work hard, get good grades, take on that student loan debt, but it'll be fine. You also have this, this sort of myth or the ideal of home ownership being another thing that we were told as a little kid. And now media has taken it in part because of social media, in part because of, I think, uh, a broken set of incentives. But now media is looked at rather skeptically or cynically. So that's another institution that's toppled. And I just think you have such an opportunity to build for an audience that is so cynical and skeptical of institutions and also so fluent in technology, that it's a perfect storm. And so it doesn't surprise me that every one of these has turned in the way that it has. And I don't see it coming back. And I guess you could even go so far as to now point at science and vaccinations where being fueled by social media misinformation, you have a real skepticism of vaccines that is holding our country back from getting through this pandemic. And dude, I mean, this is the new reality we have to try to figure out and adapt to, but it is jarring because, especially for the people who have wielded influence and authority and power because of institutions, they gotta be looking around wondering what the hell is happening, but it's, I don't think it comes back. I don't know what it would take to, to restore that. And I think we need to develop, the bottom up approach is gonna need to just get better so now do you think we have the both environment, which sounds like that's what you just laid out, but to now the infrastructure and technology to aggregate communities online for the same thing to happen in financial services? Yeah, I think so. And, and then and it only makes sense. OK, we are we're still organisms who love order and in a lot of ways love authority. I think the institutions get reborn. We could talk about the art world too. That's another one. These institutions get reborn smaller. And so maybe it's Roaring Kitty for the Wall Street Bets community where this is a very anti-establishment community and yet they have chosen their own gods. Not God, I mean, that's a little grandiose, but they've chosen their own leaders. They were not elected literally, but they were sort of elected by the community and they exist as a leader figure despite it being decentralized and without authority, without institutions. So I don't disagree with that evolution happening. However, when those leaders or communities get to certain size and scale, the people who are leading those communities still have to find a way to monetize. And as a result of that, don't they then just generally revert to the same ways that the communities of the past monetize? As an example, think about what Substack has done for journalism 
which is in some ways incredible. In some ways also there are pitfalls because there's not the same journalistic integrity necessarily. I, I don't want to say that that people on Substack don't have journalistic integrity. We're on Substack. But they're no longer bound by the rules and regulations of an institution if they were at the Washington Post or the New York Times. But we've seen this in the venture world where we're seeing many creators start with the creation of content and very good content at that. But then they realize they have to monetize. So then they end up starting a venture fund off the back of their community, which is a very elegant way of wedging into a community and leveraging a community to then monetize that community. You have this massive subscriber base who trusts you, who believes in what you're writing, what you're saying, you're providing good content to them and the world. And then you wedge in and create a venture fund. And full credit to all of those people doing that. But then eventually, don't they just end up monetizing in the same way that the traditional... And then they rebuild new institutions. Yeah, yeah no, it definitely... I really believe that this stuff in many ways ebbs and flows and, and, and repeats itself in just new forms. And I, I think the difference, though, is the new institutions will never be as big it will be way harder to get that big. Now you could see more consolidation and (laughs) these individual creators start buying up smaller creators. And then before long, you do have something pretty massive. I think it goes that way. But look at what everything from Barstool to uh, Ringer, even my boy John Boy is doing with sports media. That's an easy one because no one's really, I guess Barstool is, is offensive at times, but it's not as politicized. With something like sport media, everyone rightly rails at ESPN. But over time, basically, once the leagues get smart about rights, you know, because they're so stupid and they're punching themselves in the face every time they hold back on rights of like replays and all this stuff, it's so stupid. You're not just going to have one more ESPN monolith, but you're going to have Barstool for that demo. You're going to have Ringer for that demo. You're going to have John Boy Empire for that demo. And, and they'll absolutely acquire personalities and start to build the mimetic strength around their institution. And in you know, 50 years, John Boy Media is going to have a 401k program and be as corporate as ESPN was. It may not be as big as ESPN was, but if you can you know, increase the scope, maybe. This arc of consolidation just makes me think of the banking consolidation chart. So in the who, 90s- Who like thinks you, of like, the banking consolidation <laughs> chart, Michael? Well, seminal primary research in FinTech. But you have to understand this to understand why the digital banking opportunity in the US is so large. And it gets to exactly what you're saying, which is over time, there's this arc of consolidation that happens. In the 90s, we were both young then, so I'll put us in the same category here. But remember- Banks like Bear Stearns or Chase Manhattan. How'd that turn out for them? Chemical banking. Washington, remember WAMU, Washington Mutual? Like all of those banks, they've all consolidated into JP Morgan Chase. There were like 30, 40 big banks in the 90s that have all consolidated around 2008, 2009, which obviously ultimately that was around the crisis as well. But four major banks owned almost half of all customer deposits in the US, like almost $5 trillion. So Citigroup, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo. There was just this massive consolidation over time. I don't see why that can't happen in other industries. I also don't see why that can't happen again in financial services. It feels like we're going through this 
we've gone through this unbundling. We're now going through this rebundling because eventually everybody in consumer financial services is going after the same thing, which is the checking account. And you want to own the customer because if you own the customer deposits, you can then do a lot of other things with them. Now, doesn't mean you can't build a big business as a brokerage business, as Robinhood has done, 35-plus billion-dollar company or so, depending on where they end up with their IPO. They tried to launch a bank a few years ago unsuccessfully. I wouldn't be shocked if they do that again, just because you want to own the assets of the customer, and then you can do so many other things. But once you have the power of community, I think this is where if you can aggregate people's dollars as well as their mind share and their trust by proxy of Mindshare, I don't see why over time you can't rebundle. Yeah. Gosh, it really is just this cycle of <laughs> bundle, unbundle. This one feels different because the internet did not exist before. The interesting thing about ascending right now is if you have community and that engagement and that attention, this is the land grab. This feels like the period where if you can gobble up as much of it as you can, that door eventually closes because once you have the authority and millions and millions of followers in the community or whatever you want to call it, new technologies will emerge. Even if we're talking about Web3 and we're talking about the blockchain, new technology emerges. That is a secular shift. You can get there simply as long as you have that direct relationship and as long as you have that software. And basically, your millions and millions of users one day open the app. And it's all speaking to and, and working on a blockchain in a wallet that you don't even perceive of because you've just switched the rails and it doesn't matter. The user experience is the same. But what do you do after that? Every new person who comes online is going to see a five-star app, top of the app store with a brand that their cousin uses and their sister uses. And this, I think, speaks to a lot of what's going on in DC right now about companies like Facebook, which is... I got some press for calling Facebook Thanos or, or saying that Facebook was in many ways inevitable to becoming a $2 trillion company because what stops it? Like, yeah, I mean, it's a mediocre product company, but they will keep marching forward, acquiring users, acquiring other startups. And short of government intervention, I don't think you lose. I just think it keeps growing. And I'm not a shareholder out of principle, but it's, it's kind of bonkers. Yeah. I mean, even if we don't use Facebook, we use Instagram and WhatsApp. Yes, exactly. Right. But you're right. If we're not using Facebook, we're using Instagram or WhatsApp. Yeah. And I think that's actually an interesting lesson for traditional financial services institutions. Because when you say that we're going to live in a world of bundling and unbundling, I have to believe, and I, I worked in the strategic investments arm of one of these big banks to start my career. But you have to be thinking about, okay, these communities online are incredibly powerful, only gaining in power, and they may not like or appreciate the brand that we have as an older line financial institution. So how do we acquire that? And I have to imagine that many of these financial services firms are thinking about how do we acquire these fintechs or even communities? The trust fund Terry community? But yes, why shouldn't a big bank go and acquire an influencer who has millions of followers and is a meme account, as long as that, that meme account's complying with regulations and, and is not doing anything untoward or illegal in terms of representing securities or, or investments or whatever it may be, wouldn't that be a great way to touch and reach a totally new set of customers and people who they would never reach themselves? Wait, are you trust fund, Terry? Did I just, did we just, is that a story we scoop in this right now? 
<laughs> I mean, I can't confirm or deny. <laughs> that would break the internet. Because culturally and from a brand standpoint, all these incumbents are just so lame. It's not a thing that they would do. Just the very act of doing it would get them headlines because it's so bizarre and off-brand for them. But I think it's brilliant. This is one thing, even as I look down the next year for 776, I'm thinking about what's the lightweight, smart way to aggressively build distribution Content, obviously, is one great part of it, but the more scalable kind is the kind that you don't even have to make. And, and so then how do you find and then acquire, whether it's newsletters, TikTokers, who knows, meme accounts? Those are real. That's attention. That's very, very real. Here's the part I don't understand. If you have that audience, history has shown you really have to try to lose it. Reddit is the perfect example of this. Here's a community platform that product-wise did nothing for almost a decade did all the things you're not supposed to do as a business, especially a tech startup. Don't improve the product. Don't expand. Don't grow. Don't do any of those things. And it still grew consistently year after year after year on the momentum of community. So I look at that and I'm just like, well, okay, get to the critical mass as fast as you can because this is the moment. That window closes and this is a huge land grab. It will get much harder when you're competing against 100 others. So do you think incumbents are just too slow to be able to move and the fintechs who are at the forefront and have built community, the republics, the party rounds, the public.coms, the common stocks, et cetera, of the world. Do you think that they will be able to move fast enough to be able to capture that community and then run with it to the point where they will become the next generation financial institutions? I don't know what stops it because especially as we know that there's more and more capital flowing into this so folks are going to be able to raise money, no problem on these platforms. And then they're going to have dollars to spend. What are you going to spend it on? Obviously, talent, great. That's only going to take a portion of your budget. And I would aggressively be looking at M&A around community. Here's the other part. I had this conversation. I think this is a fine conversation. So I'm on the board of Roe. Led that at Precede four years ago. What's Roe for people who don't know? Roe Health, a telehealth platform. And basically, they are going to be every patient's first call. You got something with you that you're worried about, you want to talk to a doctor, you fire up bro. And you can do everything from doctor interactions to getting a script to managing all kinds of parts of your health and life and well-being. But here's a telehealth brand where this, this is a $5 billion company now. It's all public. Growing like gangbusters. It's only about four years old. We're, we're now at a stage where we know how to make money really well. We know how to do that very efficiently. They've got an amazing team to do user acquisition, everything from billboards to you know, Instagram ad spend. And they have a product people love, low churn, all, just all the things you could want. So now it's, what does it look like to create or acquire content and community in a way where you can empower people with great budgets to make great content, best in class, and the economics are no longer tied to like, ads. You can just genuinely make great, great content because you know it helps the brand. And because somewhere on every page is a link back to Roe or Modern Fertility, one of their brands, which converts. Mm -hmm. And they know how much it costs to acquire a customer today via someone else's channel. So you have a big budget to work with and still be making more money if you own the distribution channels. And in the same way that Coinbase did this aggressively to 
help better control the narrative around crypto and better control the narrative around Coinbase by creating their own media arm. It's also a very brilliant way to do user acquisition. And I think once companies get to that growth stage, it's it's a no-brainer. Do you think that people will trust companies that natively embed media into what they're doing? Or will they view that with some level of skepticism because it is not completely unbiased? I think Fox News has proven out this model where what people seek is something that feels legit or authentic. As long as what you're offering is opinion or is, let me say, I'm not, and Roe in particular would never have false or non-scientific claims on here. If the consumer of the content's expectation is objectivity, then yeah, don't do that because you can't mix. That's just not going to work. But if the user's expectation is subjective, and this is it's scientifically rigorous, but you know what it is, it's coming from this brand, or it's true about crypto, but you know it's coming from Coinbase. I think that's what folks are looking for. And I think you actually see that people respect the candor of it. And if it's high enough quality in terms of it's entertaining and informative or whatever the values of the brand are, people are quite happy with it. It's wild because I think we're seeing a very different shift. Even journalism is going through the same thing to your original Substack point. It doesn't have the same quote unquote rigor of like, I'm going to get fired by the New York Times. But if I'm Alexis Ohanian Substack writer, I have the guidelines of the Alexis Ohanian community, which are whatever spoken or unspoken things I have promised my readers. And if one day things are going well enough that I hire someone, she has to also abide by the Alexis Ohanian standard of guidelines. And then one day they will get written down. And one day they'll be on the website. And one day they'll be on the office when there's a thousand people working there. And voila, you have a new New York Times, so to speak. We're waiting for that Substack of yours. I, I know, right? I set one up and I collect emails every now and then. I get a little notification that's, oh, so-and-so signed up. And I'm just like, God, you're good, Substack. You're good. That's the magic of Substack. They get the emails and then it goes directly in your inbox. That gets to an interesting point about the value of consumer social and online communities and the power of it where, yes, Coinbase can create their own media arm, but if they also do a good job of building their brand, they can almost have all of these independent foot soldiers out there on social trumpeting their brand some brands do this incredibly well, and it could be on the enterprise side too. Stripe does this on Twitter where they have legions of people who love Stripe and are not necessarily affiliated with it. But the power of social media is when you constantly see this kind of omnipresence of that brand out there, people start to associate that brand with positive things. So you can do things on your own and have your own media arm that, to your point, is not necessarily completely unbiased. But people don't mind that if they see this kind of independent validation on various social channels that other people like it too. Yeah. Look, dude, that's the new cosign, right? And so it's a bottom-up. For 15 years, I've been advising startups to get the... Part of the reason you get the Wall Street Journal article is so that on your site, especially early on, you can put the as seen in Wall Street Journal. I am waiting for, we're not too far off from it, the endorsement of as seen on Comex Cap <laughs> or as seen on Michael's Twitter feed. There are versions of it that are already floating around, but that's going to be the new cosign. 
And it's not going to, the Wall Street Journal question is not going to go away, but it's certainly going to get crowded. So in a world where that exists, where there's this independent validation on social channels, how do you value community? How would a company be able to value the, the quality of their community, both within their kind of closed virtual walls, but also outside of their virtual walls, and then have people understand, okay, this company is incredibly valuable because here's all these people outside of our walls who may be users, but may not be, but just love the product or love the company. Oh, man. Look, that's why we invested in Comsor. I think there's going to need to be more quantification around community for sure, because right now it's still just sort of follower counts, just sizing. There's not a lot of good engagement numbers, but looking for things like engagement, willingness to share. So not just how engaged are they with the brand, but how likely are they to advocate for it externally? Certainly if there are dollars flowing, that's a great way (laughs) to assign value, dollars in, assets under management, all that other good stuff. But this is a playbook that's going to get written a little differently for every company because there are different ways to measure this. Something that was really important to me with Reddit communities was understanding the level of toxicity within a community. Because there are some, and and there are different ways to measure that based on contentiousness of comments and voting behavior and back and forths between specific users. And there's some amount of it that's okay, because like you want engagement, you want people going back and forth because they're debating the Yankees or they're talking about finance, but it then tilts and reaches a point that you want to bring it back to. And so it's going to be different for every community and every every company, for sure. Does toxicity within an online community actually breed more engagement, though? When you think about it, sometimes all PR or all press is good press, even if it's bad in theory, because then people see it and then you get these polarizations again, which we can get into in some arenas like politics. Polarization may not be good, but does that draw the true fans in even further who will then become rabid defenders of that brand or platform so that engendering some level of toxicity or at least letting it happen may actually not be a bad thing for that platform to have some level of contentiousness let's say is good the quote-unquote toxic behavior yeah is the vitriol the personal attacks the harassment that's no bueno but there is this sweet spot of contentiousness that allows people to get, and this goes back to the the tribal mindset, allows people to feel like, no, I'm a red shirt, you're a blue shirt. Here's why I believe my thing. And, and actually, I think in a lot of arenas, sounds like a reenactment of our Madden game this past weekend, red shirts and blue shirts, Washington and Seahawks. Oh, the FIFA match was much more competitive. (laughs) The FIFA match was competitive. Uh, Yeah, no, you watched me in FIFA, but for whatever reason, we don't have highlights of that. I wonder how that happened. Weird how no replays of that one made it on the internet. (laughs) But yeah, you want to hit that sweet spot of it. You want to hit that sweet spot. And I think the whole nature of comics cap is this tension between community and capital. So we should figure out our our tribes within the, the pod, team community and team capital. I agree with that. And there definitely is a tension. But at the same time, I think these communities are blending together a little bit too, because I think and hopefully from Comex Cap a little bit too, people in financial services now see the need when you have companies like Republic or Public, et cetera, et cetera, that are actually building community successfully. Although traditional Wall Street may not have wanted to open up the floodgates to community, I think it's unavoidable now. They can't prevent it and they have to let it in order for 
their platforms to continue to engage or acquire customers. You are right, my friend. And now it's time for me to go. This is good. We got it. I think we got some good meat there. We did. 